real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. So welcome back, everybody. Nathan Rome is with you again. And today we've got a repeat customer here. Uh, we've got the Minister of Justice for the province of Alberta, Tyler Shandro, on the program. He was uh, previously on Season 1, Episode 8, which if you're looking back through the catalog, I think that was about August-ish of last year. So uh, welcome, Minister. Oh, thanks so much, Nathan. Pleasure to be back. Am I the first re- repeat customer? No, oh, no. We oh. had uh, Terry on. Terry oh, that's Bryan. right. Terry's She's been on times. three times now. Oh. I think. Yeah. Or, wow. Yeah, I think it was three now. Um, anyway, I, I talk to her uh, quite often. So, yeah, we keep in touch. And, uh, and Scott, Scott's others. been on a couple times as well. Uh, Newark? No. He's been on twice. Yeah. Yeah. He was on once to talk about himself and like his background. And then we had him on when I did a series on China. So, right. A very knowledgeable guy. And I like him because I can just ask a question and he'll talk for the next 15 minutes. <laughs> so it makes my job way easier. Um, but yeah, so we haven't seen you or talked to you in a while, I guess. Um, how are things going now? Oh, good. Yeah, quite a bit has changed since we last spoke. Uh, there's been some cabinet shuffles. So now the Ministry of Justice and Solicitor General has been split. And you've had on Minister Ellis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now the soldier inside has been renamed Public Safety and it's uh, a new ministry. And um, uh, that's probably been the biggest change since we last spoke. Yeah. Well, what was the reason for the separation in that? Well, um, I, I guess that'd be a question for the premier. Oh. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, um, you know, she had some ideas about how some of the ministries would would be um, reorganized uh, when she came into the job in October. And that was one of the, the things that she was uh, passionate about. Um, but, you know, Mike, um, it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, like we've coached together, coached hockey together. Um, I used to be his president of his constituency association. We've been friends for quite a long time. So a okay. uh, guy that it's, it, it's always, and well, we were also in health together when he was the associate minister for mental health and addiction. So we, we work well together. So it's, it's great. That's great. I know people appreciate that. Uh, he worked in policing before, so mm. he has kind of that personal perspective when it comes to some of these issues. I mean, he could speak directly to having dealt with some of those issues, I guess. So mm. it kind of helps. Um, so what, can you explain for people what the difference between your portfolio is and the new public safety one? Uh, yeah, it always was two ministries uh, before uh, the uh, justice and attorney general side, which is um, the the courts, uh, legal aid, uh, those types of issues that, mm. that relate to uh, justice. And there are a lot of provinces where they are split. Uh, and then the sole gen side, which is policing and corrections. So it's it's... A matter of the policing and correction side uh, that that really, I mean, even though there were a lot of supports that were uh, used by both sides, mm-hmm. um, it, it was two ministries um, squished together for for that period of time. Okay, um, so there's the split, and now do you find that you have more time, like free time, I guess, or is it still just just as busy? I mean, it's still busy, but yeah, it's it's fewer files to, to work on because all those files. Um, there are a lot of, of files that we were working on when, when I was in Justice and Soul Gen. Um, 
whether it was the victim services redesign and mm. engaging with real communities about their in, answering their questions related to to that redesign or um, policing files um, there's there's a, a lot so th- those files are now with with someone else so uh, but we're we're still finding ways to keep ourselves busy yeah I imagine you can maybe just pick up more stuff that's under your portfolio now rather than just being spread thin across a whole spectrum of stuff. Yeah, and and working with Terry still, um, mm-hmm. I was thankful that her office stayed under justice rather than moving to public safety. So we, we've still been working with her uh, on a number of issues, like the new Bill Eight, the Firearms Act, mm-hmm. um, and uh, no, this, we're we're still keeping ourselves busy. Yeah, and how's everything else outside of the house, family, and everybody doing right now? Oh, that's kind of you to ask. Um, yeah, no, everybody is is good. Um, being in session is always hard on, on the family when you're uh, in Edmonton from you know Sunday to, to Thursday, but uh, mm-hmm. everybody's doing well in school and doing well in sports. And yeah. What is, uh, like you're coming up to an election. So what does your, your schedule kind of look like? Like, are you in Edmonton for a week at a time or do you, uh, are you just kind of all over the place? Like how, how busy do you get at this time of the year? Well, yeah, when you're in session, uh, when the the legislature is sitting, you're you're in Edmonton from either Sunday night or or Monday morning until Thursday, and then you get to go back home. Uh, you you do as much family stuff as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, since last summer, I mean, there's still been a lot of campaigning. We we now that we have fixed election dates, we we know that we have uh, an, an election coming up in May. So starting in in the summer, um, trying to use time, mm-hmm. whether it's a, an evening in the weekday or uh, on a weekend to, to go knock on doors and engage with folks. Um, that's That's been, uh, and of course it is ramping up now over the yeah. last month or so. Yeah, you sound like, uh, you sound like police who work uh, shift work where, you, <laughs> you know, you're four days off, you just, it's like a giant blitz trying to cram in uh, all the family time, all the activities, all the sports, maybe get a vacation in, in, in a couple days, do a short stint somewhere. But uh, yeah, I can imagine you guys are extra busy, especially when it comes up to the election. Um, maybe we'll kind of get into some of the issues uh, uh, or different changes that are in the budget. Uh, first and foremost, I kind of was hoping to talk about the firearms stuff because mm. I know this uh, affects me a little bit. So I'm more interested in this than anything. But um, so you have the Alberta Firearms Act. What exactly is this? And, and then maybe we'll get into how there are some changes coming. Sure. It it, it has um, some um, different facets to it. It started by talking to Terry about the ways in which we have confusion because while, well, really just because both jurisdictions, both the, the, the federal government and the province have a role to play in firearms regulation. Mm. Um, the, the federal government, because it relates to the criminal code, head of power, so they have the responsibility to um, to well, make changes to the criminal code that enables them to have their their own federal firearms act. But the the provinces are also involved because there are ways in which firearms um, fall under uh, personal property, mm-hmm. um, and the provinces are involved in the operation and, and implementation of the federal firearms act. But because of that, both jurisdictions being involved in 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 regulation of firearms, there is some confusion, and in particular in. The, the firearms community and others, when they're trying to ask Terry in her office about a certain question, when what, what does her office do and what do the feds do? Mm-hmm. So I, there needed to be more clarity and there needed to be an opportunity for us to uh, have 
provincial um, legislation related to firearms. And we learned from what Saskatchewan was doing. Saskatchewan came forward with their own federal, or sorry, their own uh, firearms legislation. Um, The other aspects of it are uh, ways in which we can empower the chief firearms office to, um, to, to do more when it comes to keeping our community safe, mm-hmm. um, working with retailers, working with manufacturers, working with the firearms community to making sure that they continue, as they always have been, focused on uh, safe communities. And, and then, you know, thinking about as well with the federal confiscation program, if we're going to have an increase in the storage and the transportation of firearms throughout the, the province, that does have a little bit of a risk when it comes to safety of our communities. Who's going to be involved in these programs? And the federal government has often not been clear or they've been changing their, their minds often on um, what, what this confiscation program is going to be looking like and mm-hmm. who's going to be involved, where is it going to start. So making sure that whoever is going to be involved in it, we're going to have a say. We're going to be involved in the licensing of those folks, uh, making sure that the transportation is is fair, that the compensation is fair, and uh, and and well, making sure that those who are going to be involved, we're, we're we're going to be licensing them. Yeah. So that was one of the things I found kind of interesting was the uh, I guess it was termed the licensed seizure agents. So what does that look like for the province? So basically, if somebody wants to be involved in the the seizure of the firearms, they first have to apply to get a license, or is it just like even if they're a police officer, how is this going to kind of play out? Well, we don't know yet. And the reason mm-hmm. is is because we don't know what the feds are planning yet. So we wanted mm-hmm. this piece of legislation to be nimble. Um, and as the federal government has more details, instead of having everything prescribed in the legislation, uh, like Saskatchewan does immediately like right now, as the feds make changes, they're going to have to make legislative changes to keep up with that. Mm-hmm. What we've done is delegate the authority to a future government to pass regs related to this, um, the, the licensing of seizure agents. So when we get the details from the federal government, then we'll be able to pass a, a reg um, providing further details about it rather than being prescriptive in the legislation. Okay. The one thing I uh, always found interesting about this whole debate since it's basically started uh, uh, with this current federal government was I don't know where they get their information from uh, and, and when it comes to who's committing crimes and what type of firearms they use. So I think a lot of people appreciate the um, the exercising of maybe I'll call it sovereignty when it comes to firearms and seeing that the province sticks up for uh, people's rights here because you know just delegating from Ottawa what's happening over in this part of the country as opposed to this part of the country when people live very different lives right across the the nation um, I think people really appreciate that so some of the work that's being done by the province. Um, what I, I I wonder too is like, so at the end of the day, does the federal government have the ultimate say in whether you have to turn over your firearms or is there, is that still a gray area when it comes to the differing powers? So you have the feds come in and say, hand over your guns on this date. Uh, I imagine a lot of people are going to turn to the province and say, uh, am I doing this or are we not doing this? So the province is kind of in the middle. Um, what do you, how do you see that kind of playing out? Well, I think if you go back to May of 2020, that first order in council where overnight they criminalized or proposed to criminalize. I mean, they mm-hmm. do have the amnesty that's 
supposed to be ending in, in October this year. But if if they're going to to do that, or through C21, which is going to now legislate what was in that order in council, um, this is proposing to criminalize hundreds of thousands of, of folks um, <clears throat> overnight merely for possessing legally acquired property. So if if that's the concern that that we have, um, and they have the amnesty that's well, they've even said publicly they're going to extend it beyond October. That's great news because mm-hmm. I think they're admitting that they don't have the resources or the wherewithal to actually implement this uh, poorly thought out idea. Um, if that's the case, then we have to to make sure that we're, we're pressuring for further extensions of the amnesty and make it indefinite. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's that's what's going to end up happening um, because they they just don't have the wherewithal or the resources to actually operate what they're they're contemplating here. Well, and maybe that kind of goes into a bit on this next part where it was the Firearms Compensation Committee. So that was part of this uh, this announcement. So how are you going to um, argue for fair compensation? Like, are, are you just talking with the CFO and some of the um, firearms businesses and saying, hey, what would this, this type of firearm be worth? Um, the other thing on that too, and nobody's ever actually said this on the federal side, is what part of the firearm are they actually looking at taking from people? Mm. That's the other thing that I was wondering. Like, do you have to hand in the whole thing, or they're like, nope, that doesn't count, or is it just the serial uh, serial number part or the upper and lower? So, um, sorry, it's kind of two questions there, but um, yeah, what what's the comp- how's the compensation supposed to work, and then what part of the firearms are we actually handing in? Well, um, again, the details will will have to be hammered out when we get details from the feds, and we want this to be mm-hmm. nimble. We don't want to be too prescriptive in our legislation, so we have got to run back to the legislature and, and make changes every time they change their mind, because we know they change their mind often. Mm-hmm. So, but the the idea of a compensation committee is related to the concerns we've heard from the firearms community um, that they don't believe that they're going to get fair market value for their firearms, and and honestly. You know the the order in council in 2020 has affected the ability to to transfer um, some of these firearms to sell them, and that affects the fair market value. So, um, and as well, when one of the plans that they had for the confiscation program was for um, using Canada Post, and people were going to mail in their firearms. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I guess <laughs> you, you mail in your firearm was one of the ideas, and then there they would take a look at your firearm. They would decide what they're going to compensate you. They'd send a check, and then people had anxiety over, well, how do I? Well, wait, if if I don't like that price, yeah, are you going to mail me back my my firearm? Yeah, definitely not going to get it back. <laughs> You're not, and probably don't have an appeal mechanism. Mm-hmm. But people were just really anxious that this is a, a federal government that is is targeting hunters and, and shooters and sport sport shooters and farmers, um, and not treating them fairly. So don't have a lot of faith in that uh, compensation aspect of it. So the compensation committee, I, we're hoping, is going to um, allow the firearms community for those who who do turn in their their firearms, if that's something that doesn't get extended in an amnesty, um, or for or with the amnesty being extended, um, that they're at least going to have the province advocating for them and getting fair market value for for their um, their firearms when they're um, for, you know confiscated to the federal government. Okay. Um- yeah, that's one of the things when I was talking with Terry uh, about this was, I mean, she has a, a like a whole historical collection. Yeah, and one of the largest yeah. Japanese yeah. collections in I think in Canada. 
Oh, really? Yeah. And, well, and you can't transfer that to your uh, family. You can't pass that on to anybody under the new rules, right? I thought, like, to me, that seemed like the most mind blowing aspect. Like, we're just going to wipe out history now. So, it, it, I could see how a lot of people would be very upset about that. Um, and one other thing that was on uh, the Firearms Act was, uh, I don't know how to word this too well. I was trying to read it and make sense of it, but it was basically no deals between the police or municipalities and the feds without the province having uh, some input in that. Can you explain what exactly? Uh, that aspect is to this whole sure. debate. That if a police service um, or a municipality wanted to enter into conversations with the federal government to take money from the federal government to be the seizure agents themselves mm. and be implementing, operating the uh, confiscation program, they would have to get licensed. They'd have to get permission from the province in, in that first instance. The reason being, well, the easy one is to talk about the, the police services. We have a huge concern if we're going to take resources off the streets and uh, we already see our police services um, dealing with really complex issues. Um, we, we do not want police resources being taken over the streets and being distracted by um, this. Well, it's going to be a, a billion-dollar moondoggle, this, yeah. this uh, confiscation program. Um, so that's the first aspect of it. But we've also heard from those police services. They do not want, or the RCMP even told us, when they, they let us know they first got approached by the federal government to be involved in the confiscation, they don't want to be involved in the confiscation of, of firearms. So that's, that's the first part of it. With the municipalities, we did hear from uh, deputy ministers that uh, there was a, a conference of deputy ministers meeting with the civil service federally, and the feds had told civil servants that they had entered into conversations with municipalities here in Alberta mm. to uh, work with them and having them operating the confiscation program. Um, that, that has concerns for me. Are those employees going to have the right training? Mm -hmm. Are they going to be storing them properly? Um, we do not want our municipalities to, to be involved in this. So if they want to, um, they would have to, um, well, the, the province would have a say through a regulation that would um, actually, once Bill 8 is passed, and it just last night passed through Committee of the Whole, so third reading is next. When it's passed, one of the first regs that we will be proposing or I'll be proposing to cabinet is that reg related to the municipalities. Okay. And, and we have no interest at this time in, um, in having our municipalities in Alberta involved in the confiscation program. Um, so that's going to be clear in, in that reg that I propose to, to cabinet. At the end of the day, so if the federal government says, okay, we're taking these guns, this is happening, can they come, like the RCMP fall under uh, the feds? Can they go to them and say, you're doing this? Or does the province still get to have a say because it's, it's contract policing? Mm -hmm. So where, you know, who has the ultimate say at the end of the day on whether a service carries out this duty or act? Yeah, it's been interesting in the whole conversation about contract policing here in Alberta. And as I was engaging municipalities, um, some of them having been engaged by the union for the RCMP, the, the uh, NPF, the National Policing Federation, the, the National Policing Federation want to highlight um, the input that we have at a, at a local level here in Alberta with policing, you know, because we get to give advice. But advice is not civil uh, civilian oversight over mm -hmm. how resources or are distributed throughout a, um, throughout a catchment area or how 
um, were not not allowed to um, develop policy for the the RCMP. Um, at the end of the day, the provincial policing services agreement that we have with Canada makes it clear that the RCMP only answered to the federal government. That really all we can do is give advice. Now, uh, what we can do in one of the, the clauses of the PPSA is to say what our priorities are as a province. Again, just giving advice. And, but we did use that. And I sent a letter um, telling the RCMP and Minister Mendicino, the federal public safety minister, uh, that distracting police resources by having the RCMP involved in this confiscation program is not a priority. We do not want them to do it. When I sent that letter, Mendicino did say publicly, I don't really care. Mm. And if I wanted to, I could conscript the RCMP and I could direct them to do it. Nice that you told us what you think, Alberta, but um, we get the final say at the end of the day. So that was interesting to hear him say that publicly. Mm. And I I think that's made a lot of folks in in Alberta nervous. Um, I think it's made the RCMP nervous. Because as I said, they've told us they don't want to be involved in this. Um, but quite frankly, they they may at the end of the day, if Mendicino really wants to to do this, he may conscript the RCMP to have them uh, act as the seizure agents. That that might be the only way that the federal government has the wherewithal to to implement this in the end. Yeah, I I I'm not too sure um, how that would really play out. Like, I don't I don't think they have the resources from what I've seen talking to guys on the ground. When you go to some of the detachments, they're running overtime every night. They're calling in people. Um, they call in people from other parts of Alberta. They bring them in, pay for a hotel for them to work overtime. So I don't know where you get the resources to then also pull people off the road, like you were saying, and uh, run this program. I mean, you're going to have like one police officer in all of St. Albert or one police officer in all of Sherwood Park. And then everybody else has to be working on this program on the side. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, we have 113 detachments in Alberta. Um, almost 40% of them, I think it's about 38% of mm-hmm. all those detachments have less than 10 members in each of those detachments. Some of them are as little as three or five. Yeah. So if you're going to be taking a detachment like Smoky Lake, it's got five guys and, and gals there. Um, and one of them is going to be distracted by doing this confiscation program that suddenly reduces the complement by 20% yeah. for that entire um, detachment. And um, it, it's, it's, um, it's incredibly frustrating. As well, you know, we have to remember, over the last 10 years, how, how difficult it is for the RCMP just to keep up with the demands of contract policing. So over 10 years, we've seen the increase in, in officers in Canada and the RCMP doing contract policing, increasing by about 10%. Mm-hmm. So not quite keeping up with the pace that, that we need, but we've also seen over the last 10 years, the number of police officers in the RCMP who are doing federal policing. So this is their core function yeah. as the RCMP, doing, you know, addressing cybercrime, um, uh, human trafficking, organized crime. That's reduced over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's been reduced by 30%. It's been a, a huge um, hit on federal policing. So this is going to be a further hit on federal policing, quite frankly. Well, and you see all the stuff now with uh, talking about foreign influence and how some of that stuff has gone uh, unchecked. It's like, well, maybe if we had a, a, a reallocation of resources to those federal issues, maybe those things wouldn't be such an issue nowadays. Um, so... Uh, maybe we'll kind of move on from firearms just so I make sure we get through uh, everything in time. But uh, pre-charge assessment. 
So I think mm-hmm. this is a, a really big topic for a lot of members, especially on the the front lines. So what are some of the changes that are coming with this? And um, to me, it sounds like a, uh, a very similar version of what uh, BC is running right now. Mm. But I saw there were some differences when you kind of read in the, the nuance of what's happening. So can you talk a bit about this change? Well, it, it, we start off as a pilot learning from what BC was doing. Um, we saw a reduction in the amount of charges that are going into the court system um, by a significant amount. I, I think it was uh, 20% from that pilot project. So an opportunity now to hire 16 new prosecutors focused on this pre-charge assessment project um, throughout the province now and having it fully implemented by the end of the fiscal year, so early 2024, um, having 16 of these prosecutors doing that work and working in particular in in rural Alberta Mm. to work with uh, those uh, detachment members in the RCMP and and giving them advice. As we know, uh, at the end of the day, the whether to lay a charge is going to be the decision of the police officer, but allowing the the crown to give their opinion at least to the the um, the police officer to help that police officer make the best decision, and making sure that the 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 charges that do enter into the court system that take up the the court resources are going to be the ones that are have the best chance of of conviction that are going to be um, uh, and, and getting that advice from the 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 crown before that that ends up happening. Yeah, I saw that was one of the differences where I guess in BC, the crown, before you even lay a charge, they're the ones who say yay or nay, whether it's going ahead. But in Alberta, the police officer themselves, they're going to retain that ability kind of under the advisement of the crown. Is that how it works? That, that's, that's exactly right. That it's just the, um, the crown giving their advice to the police officer. Okay. Is it, what was the thought process behind that? Like, why why are we leaving it with the police officer as opposed to just handing it to a crown? Well, um, I, I think it just it, from the pilot project. I think that's what we learned, and mm. and we learned that it was still um, we saw some great results from the pilot project. Um, there there were concerns as well that the folks had in in rural Alberta about charges that had been withdrawn. And, you know, as those statistics, even though they are reducing over the last three years, um, what are those charges that are being withdrawn looking like? And, yeah. and why were they withdrawn in the first place? And trying to learn from that and trying to, to get that, that feedback into the process before um, a charge goes to court and a Crown makes a decision to withdraw. Okay. Um, and then on that, I guess one of the things that I think most people... Uh, most of the constables out there that are going to be making these arrests and, and laying the charges is, uh, is is this whole program being done to kind of eliminate um, weak charges? So like where you don't put forward a good case and the crowd can say, hey, like you need to go collect some more evidence. This isn't going to be good. And or is it also going to uh, eliminate some of the, I'll say the lower um, severity charges? So this is kind of what we see right now where you can put forward like someone keeps going in and stealing uh, stuff at a convenience store. You charge with a theft, it might make it to the crown and then they throw it out because they just say, you know what, I'm too busy and this isn't in public interest to run it, which I get to a degree, but I mean, if that store clerk is constantly a victim of this crime, it's important to them. So will this affect those lower severity ones or is this just strictly about the uh, the quality of investigation being put forward? 
I, I would hope it's the former, not the latter, because you're right. The um, you know, it, it is a bit like broken window theory. And when you have, in particular in a rural community and and somebody is continually hit by by property crimes, um, and that's happening a lot right now mm-hmm. in, in um our communities in Alberta, and it's really frustrating for business owners, for for Albertans, um, having someone continuing to to offend and feeling like those those folks who um, are committing those property crimes are doing it with impunity. Yeah. And and there has to, to be an opportunity for us to make sure that people feel safe in their, their communities. So Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's, I mean, even for the officers, when you go and you, you know, sometimes even if it's a basic theft, that can take you a couple hours to deal with collecting statements, collecting video and evidence, and then, and then dealing with the accused, depending on when you arrest a person, they got warrants or breaches and other things. And then you, at the end of the day, you're like, I'm just charging with this theft. It's going to go nowhere, but I just spent, you know, four or five hours dealing with this person. So, um, yeah, it definitely, um, can make people, I'll say a bit jaded when they deal with the system of it. Right. So, um, do you, did you see any, when you had this project going, were there any real negatives that you saw out of it? And you, um, did you, were you able to come up with any solutions ahead of time? Well, well, from my aspect, uh, for, for me, as we were making our submissions about budget 23, um, the case I'd, I'd been making for the last year is that the, the justice system needed an investment. Um, we needed to spend more in, in both the soul gen side, the policing side, and in, in the justice side. As I was making that case, and, and then when the, the ministry was split in two, me and Mike making the case, um, we were asked by, by Treasury Board, what would be the ways in which you make these investments into the, the justice system? This was one, I suppose, that came out of that. If, if you know, I mean, there are a couple of different projects that, that we had included in Budget 23. One was investing in the frontline services and the courts, having 140 new clerks being hired so mm-hmm. we can deal with stuff like at the beginning before it gets in the court system. And if if this is a matter of dealing with volume in the court system, this was just a, another one of the projects. We we started off in the pilot. We saw some some great results. Um, and then it was a matter of making the case to Treasury Board. We wanted to make the investment in implementing it province-wide. So that, that was, it, for us, it's, I mean, because I'm a politician, I'm the minister, it's a matter of of dealing with it from a, a policy perspective and a budget perspective rather than the nitty-gritty in, in the operations. Um. Are you the person to talk to to change the mischief name? Can we change that on charges? Can we make it a oh. different term? <laughs> well, it's such a weak word. <laughs> I don't get oh. especially if somebody goes and crashes into a building and we're like, ah, mischief. I was like, ah, this doesn't really fit what's going on here. We have a uh, total destruction. Um, <laughs> it would, no, because that would be the criminal code. Only the feds can make uh, changes to the, the criminal code. But, um, yeah, if you you had a, a better word other than syn- or a different synonym for for mischief, I just thought we could maybe toughen it up a bit. Oh, <laughs> well, I then I'd, I'd be happy to to let Minister Lemay yeah. know uh, that I'm sure you got better things to do. <laughs> but I think because the criminal code was first drafted in you know the 1800s, right? So mm-hmm. um, there are there is some vocabulary that that's just stayed in there and and doesn't apply to our our modern lives mm-hmm. and there are ways in which the criminal code should be amended to better reflect modern day society um i have to admit that's the first time 
when you say it now, yeah, uh, it <laughs> doesn't, doesn't make sense. And I can imagine a, a victim um, of, of a serious crime like that saying, wait, mischief. That yes. Kind of seems to me as a victim uh, to be insulting. It's, it's under underplaying the the severity of, of how you know what what how my life was affected I yeah. can see that yeah and that's that's exactly where this is coming from where I go to some of these things and you know um, we'll have uh, we can go to a domestic for example and one person one of the parties is smashes all the windows in a house smashes the car person and then you know the other spouse comes home and finds this destruction and you're like yeah it's gonna be a mischief charge they're like what that just sounds not very serious. Maybe mischief under five thousand could be mischief, and think of another word for something above it. But it, it it just it has come across at certain calls that we've been at where the person thinks like, well, yeah, that's kind of downplaying what, yeah, what happened to me, what's happened in my life here. So, um, yeah, I just thought uh, yeah, I'll push that up through the chain. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and. On that, uh, maybe we'll talk a bit about the other end of things. So on the bail side, mm-hmm. I know this is a huge issue for police members. What's being done uh, about the bail process and how violent offenders and repeat offenders seem to just get out now? Um, like before you're done your shift. So you yeah. go in and um, us specifically being on the gang team, we've arrested guys in the middle of nightclubs throwing their gun and they're out on bail uh, before I make it home at the end of my shift. So it's like, what what's what can be done on that side? Because I know this is a bit of a federal and provincial back and forth on some things. Yeah, in 2019, the federal government changed the bail regime. And I get that they were they're trying to address a, a decision from the Supreme Court in the Antic decision. But what they ended up changing, what is called C-75, um, ended up... Look, it, Everybody should be presumed innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. But there are just some circumstances, in particular if someone's a repeat offender, if someone's accused of a serious crime, um, where pretrial custody is just more appropriate. And the, the, the federal government changed the criminal code, changed the bail regime to make it almost impossible for anyone to be held in pretrial custody. Mm-hmm. And the reasons they gave for, for making those changes we actually haven't seen any changes to to what they were actually saying was their concern. Um, so it didn't do what it was meant to do. And all it did is, um, I think, empower um, a class of offenders who felt that they could continue to inflict violence on their fellow Albertans and their fellow Canadians um, with impunity. Um, and we've seen the last four years a, a, a real big change in the safety in our communities because of these changes. The, the federal government, I, I've been advocating for changes to what happened in C-75. I, I was framing it as we need to go back to pre-70, C-75. Mm-hmm. Um, the, when I, I came to a justice minister's conference in October, brought this up. And, and I think once the federal government saw that it's not just Alberta, but also BC, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and New Brunswick all jumped in and said, hey, yeah, this is really making our communities less safe. Um, the, all the premiers in, in January of every province, every territory signed a letter demanding um, uh, a change to the bail regime, which put a reverse onus on the accused if they are a repeat offender or accused of a serious crime. Um, when we went back to Ottawa in, uh, in March, well, this, yeah, this month, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we made the case again 
we at first got some indication from the federal government that they think everything's great, no changes are needed, mm. we can just spend our way out of this problem, we'll just give you some more money, please don't make us change the, the bail regime. So the provinces all went into that meeting pretty heated, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. When you know the meeting started, though, they, the, the federal government started off by saying, okay, you guys are right. And they conceded to some changes to the criminal code. That's a huge change for us. Yeah. Um, they, they say that they're going to be implementing those changes ASAP, um, potentially, or as early as this current session in, in the House of Commons. That's, that's a huge win for us. It's not the end. And, and I was invited by Minister Lametti to suggest further changes that, that could be made to the criminal code and the bail regime. I'll, I'll be making those suggestions and submitting them for uh, his his consideration because the more needs to be done, but um, at least we're getting that reverse onus is fantastic news. Can you kind of give us an idea of what some of those recommendations might be? Not at this time. I mean, mm-hmm. I've I've asked uh, the Crown Prosecution Service to to um, to also provide some feedback uh, to us, um, and so um, I I I think. When it came to domestic violence, some of the changes in C-75 were, were great, um, but there's a, a lot more in what happened in C-75 for us to, to be able to address with the federal government. We also need to back it up with data. So working mm-hmm. with our police services and working with Minister Ellis to be able to make the case to the federal government, because they don't keep track of, of, uh, of these stats themselves, but how for the period of time before C-75 and the period of time after it, how many more folks who would have been on some type of conditional release, like a bail, would have been back out in the community? And how many more crimes would have been committed by those folks? Mm-hmm. And what type of crimes were they? You know, how many involved a serious injury? How many of them might have involved a homicide? How many of them would have um, included a, a weapon of some kind? And then being able to show the, the federal government those stats to help make the case as well is going to be important for whether we're successful or not. Um, one of the previous guests I had on here is a former DEA agent. And he was speaking a lot about uh, drugs being a nexus for crime and violence. And I know I've heard this a few times dealing with drug investigations and they're not thought of as a violent crime. One of the things that I think maybe the narrative needs to change on is, is just how drugs are a nexus to further crimes, further mm-hmm. destruction both of a person, but also uh, property. And, you know, something like simple possession of drugs is maybe its own category. But if you get a person and you charge them with drug trafficking, like inherently involved in drug trafficking is violence. You have Mm -hmm. to protect your money. You have to protect your product um, and your people. So drug trafficking as kind of a nexus to... uh, like all the shootings that are going on in the city right now and just some of the gang violence. I think that kind of gets lost on people. They just think of drugs as, um, you know, it's just, it's just somebody using drugs. They're not hurting anybody, but really it it actually has uh, cascading effects. They compound and, and lead to further uh, issues Um, in that same realm. uh, A lot of the guys that we talk to from the gang perspective they, uh, right now, they know, just like you were saying, the bail process. They're like, I've got a good lawyer. I'm going to get out on on this or whatever. Uh, they're actually straight up say to us, I'm not worried about the criminal charges. 
But what actually hurts them is going after the finances. So civil, uh, civil forfeiture has been a huge one, especially in BC. I mean, they just took, was it three clubhouses from the Hells Angels out there, um, which was a bit of a long process, but I mean, they finally got them. So taking away that crime-oriented property, I guess would be the way to say it, uh, and, and the cash from people and seizing that and using it, um, uh, giving it over to the government. So I know a lot of people uh, see like on the bad guy side of things, they're more scared of provincial sanctions and um, outcomes than they are of the criminal side. It seems like nothing really gets done on the criminal side nowadays. So that's just a bit of insight. Like, uh, um, I don't know if you have a comment on that or if you've had some experience uh, uh, with people stating that at all. Has that ever come up? Um, yeah, I do have a little bit to say on that. And, and thank you for that comment because you're right. Those who are involved in organized crime, it is inherently violent. Um, and these are folks who do prey on the vulnerable. Um, and I think that's why the, the Harper government uh, previously had made changes to mandatory minimums for, for those who had been involved in drug trafficking. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time in Canada, there, there were critics who were upset by, by those mandatory minimums. But it, it really is focused on um, risk to the community rather than what's... It, it, I, so I, I, I do agree that we, we need to be focusing the criminal code on, on addressing uh, those who are involved mm-hmm. in, in organized crime, uh, having mandatory minimums for those, those folks. Um, but um, I would say as well, the, uh, both the, the, the province and the feds in, in the programs that are, are being uh, funded and, and uh, implemented when it comes to gangs and, and guns. Um, I know Mike is, is doing more work on, on this uh, as the public safety minister mm-hmm. and, and working with police services and addressing that, making sure that we have ACERT, which is, um, as you know, for listeners who don't, um, you know, criminals don't care about municipal boundaries. So having, mm-hmm. um, a, sorry, not ACERT, alerts or alert, um, yeah. A-L-E-R-T, um, uh, kind of like a police service that helps all the municipal services in the RCMP to coordinate with each other and to address uh, crime that might be happening in, in neighboring uh, or adjacent municipalities. Um, but having alert focused on on that, giving, making sure they have the resources, making sure that we have the prosecution service who has um, the resources to be focusing. This budget is going to have a crown prosecutor uh, who's focused on firearms, um, uh, um, prosecutions, but ways in which we can also make sure the prosecution service has the resources targeting the gangs and guns files as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to civil forfeiture, I mean, that's a great, great point. Um, I mean, those decisions on, on whether to, to focus, though, on, on organized crime and how to hit them the best in Alberta, those are decisions to be made by our, our police services. Um, but, it, yeah, I, I think that's a great point. You know, mm-hmm. how, to, how to make sure it's as painful as possible for, for those involved in organized crime. Well, and, um, you know, good point on alert. So one of the biggest things that I've seen uh, from their perspective is sharing of info. So you've got that integrated team, multiple services. It's just easier to share because not everybody uses the same databases when it comes to uh, storing information. No. So the sharing of info there, um, but also the policy. So you're able to jump between services and use different policy. Because like obviously the RCMP, their policies are written out in Ottawa. And then you have the local 
services that are joint and they have different policies or different ways they might handle things like informants or how they might progress through an investigation. So it basically, if you don't, if you don't like how one service policy might handle something or it, it kind of uh, throws up a roadblock at you, if the other service has a way of dealing with that or different resources, you can operate under that, that service's policy. So it just gives you more avenues to be effective against crime. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, criminals, um, they don't have any boundaries. They don't, borders are not, um, not an issue anymore. So you need, you need police services uh, or these organizations like Alert to be nimble and... Uh, and resourced. And resourced, yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things too that uh, was mentioned was, uh, or that we were talking about, just about like the severity of uh, some of the charges and theft and mischief in particular. Has there ever, any been, ever been discussion about just turning some offenses into ticketable offenses? Has that ever come up? Like a, a, an administrative penalty instead of a, a criminal charge? Yeah, so say you commit a theft. You see this in the States now, but um, theft uh, up to $900, we're just going to give you a ticket instead of an appearance notice, make you go to court and go through the court process. Has that ever been a thing here? Has that ever even come up for discussion? Well, I think there's ways in which we, because um, we do have administrative penalties provincially, like the, the Traffic Safety Act or, or otherwise, um, in which we as a province can can create legislation, mm-hmm. create a penalty for it, um, give somebody a ticket if they contravene the provincial legislation, make sure that they are, are dealt with. And some of them are going to go to court. Not all of them are going to be just a ticket that you just pay. Um, if, if folks had suggestions for us on how we can um, better use administrative penalties to to deal with these situations, we're happy to get it. I know it, it's one of the things that we're grappling with as a province, as we see in BC, the the decriminalization um, for for drugs in BC. Um, the feedback that I've gotten from every chief is, look, if that ever came to Alberta, we're not ready for it yet. Mm-hmm. And there would have to be ways in which we we um, made sure that there were administrative penalties at least to to deal with certain situations, so that, for example, police can be uh, lawfully placed. Um, yeah. That there uh, are ways in which the police can. Um, intervene and still help someone to get the the resources or the help that they need in the community, um, and uh, so uh, uh, there's a lot more work that have to be done in the province before we would be ready if the federal government ever imposed that on us. And um, I, I think that that might be an example is having administrative penalties yeah. and and things for us to learn from, um, for example, Portugal, where they have uh, dissuasion commissions. Mm-hmm. So somebody gets a ticket, has to go into the dissuasion commission. And then um, and and deal with it in an administrative way rather than a criminal way. Yeah, actually, I had uh, Dr. Julian Summers was on the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, and I know he came out and presented to the chiefs of police here, um, and he talks about those very things. Like uh, we got into the whole Portugal model and just how um, you see a lot of people bring that up, but don't necessarily know what it is or or how it works, and they think it's just simply decriminalizing or legalizing drugs. It's like, no, there's a whole nother system behind the scenes and things that happen if somebody gets uh, dealt with for drug use. So uh, again, that's why we have these long form discussions so we can kind of flesh those things out rather than two lines, you know, on social media where people are are not getting the best information. So um, I totally agree. Uh, one of the things that uh, 
uh, one of your people pointed out to me here just before we kind of got the podcast going was just about income support benefits for violent offenders. I didn't even know this was a thing. So can you talk a bit about this and what uh, some of the changes to this loophole are? Yeah, one of the the changes we're proposing in the legislature um, is aligning ourselves with provinces like BC or Manitoba who um, have a mechanism for if there is someone who has warrants out for the arrest, they're accused of a serious crime, um, that they don't, um, there's a way for their, so the ministry, um, the equivalent of of, um, social services in in that province would be able to make sure that that offender or that accused does not have um, an ability to access income supports or their version of income supports in that province. Um, so what we're proposing in this legislation is to allow the uh, Ministry of Seniors, Community, and Social Services to ensure that those folks, and an ability for for um, Mike's ministry and the police services, um, the, the Crown, to be able to work with that ministry, make sure they have that information. And if somebody uh, is accused of a serious crime mm. um, and uh, has warrants out for the arrest, that there'd be a way to make sure they, they're not accessing income support so that the... the the taxpayer isn't funding this criminal lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think BC saw that when there was the the fellow accused of the crimes and the James Smith Cree First Nation, mm. that that was um, someone I understand might have uh, been uh, accessing their version of, of income supports. Um, so Saskatchewan is proposed to uh, to change their legislation in the same way. Now, there, there may be someone who's accused and uh, but the the family does depend um, on on the income supports, um, and there may be a hardship on the family. Not so worried about about the accused and and the offender, but um, if that's the case, there is uh, an opportunity for uh, that hardship to be recognized, and mm. for some flexibility for that the director to make uh, an assessment and, and decide whether or not to continue to provide that family with those income supports. So, um, not trying to, to punish the family. Um, but we definitely don't want the taxpayer funding criminal lifestyles. Yeah, I don't want to be supporting the the guy who's running from me, and I'm paying for his gas for his car and then his hotels as he's going along the way. So I don't think that's great. Um, yeah, I, I didn't even know that was a thing. So uh, um, how do those those kind of issues uh, come to your attention? Because I mean, this sounds like something that would just be buried somewhere in in legislation. So how did that even come up? I think it was looking at what Saskatchewan was changing in their legislation mm. and making the asking the question of our ministry, you know, that's interesting. What is the situation in Alberta? What's the situation in other provinces? Finding out that what Saskatchewan was doing was aligning themselves with uh, a couple other provinces. But yeah, we in, in Alberta right now, we don't have a mechanism for um, uh, if, if somebody wanted to apply, there's not even a way for that ministry to even know that the person's out on warrants. Yeah. Um, so... Um, you know, looking at EPS's website, there there is a a part of the website that lists the the, the most wanted, mm-hmm. um, and it's a matter of, of taking a look at those folks. Some of them, I think, there's one fellow. Last time I checked, has 37 warrants out for his arrest. Yeah, um, and for some very serious and violent charges like kidnapping and um, inflicting violence on uh, domestic partners and uh, others throughout the province. Is is that someone we want to 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 have access to income supports? Now we don't know if that that person does right now, but there's got to be a way for the ministries to work together. And if there is somebody who has been accessing income supports, then making sure that C, uh, SCSS uh, has that information. 
Yeah. And just like when we were saying about alert, like a lot of these things come down to the sharing of information. You run into a lot of roadblocks when it comes to um, like FOIP and, and, you know, one service or one, one uh, organization can't share with another, whether it's like police to Alberta health services for privacy reasons. Uh, We've run into that even just being on the street um, you know, you, you're dealing with someone, you got to get them to the hospital, but the hospital doesn't want to sh- necessarily share info with you, um, which might be beneficial to you. So, uh, yeah, I think that's usually the biggest issue I've seen from a ground perspective is that sharing, um, we're kind of coming up to the end of the time. I just want to, uh, ask one last question, uh, is, has there ever been talk about a police college here? Mm. So something similar to what BC has. Um, I know there's a bunch of groups that always look at uh, uh, police reform right across the nation, having like a national standard for certain things. But has that ever come up as uh, uh, Alberta having its own police college? Oh, we do have a, a uh, well, we have multiple mm-hmm. um, training locations. And um, I, I think one, I, I got to give a shout out to Lethbridge College because um, uh, they do fantastic work. Uh, it's not just Lethbridge police service members that that they're they're training, but also working with Medicine Hat, um, working with Tabor, um, ways in which that the the two major urbans, those services are also working with other services throughout the province, Edmonton and Calgary. Um, there was talk, um, gosh, I guess 15 years ago, 20 years ago, in which um, then Solicitor General Harvey Sinanko was talking about a, a centralized college having it in Fort McLeod. Mm-hmm. I think there were concerns that people had at that time. People ask me this question a lot when we were uh, engaging with people about whether there should be, uh, we should continue with contract policing with the RCMP or whether to establish an Alberta police service. And my my take has always been like I don't I don't think we need one mm-hmm. centralized uh, college, but we do have um, a set of standards provincially um, yeah. that that are, are required for that twenty six weeks of of training for each service to ensure that their their members when they they graduate. Um, that the recruitment class is going to be meeting those standards. And I, I think there are ways in which we can have better coordination. Um, I, I'm not sold in, on whether we need just one location, though. But, yeah. Um, I, I just think there's such great work already happening in Edmonton, Calgary, and Lethbridge. I think we can build off of that and yeah. have better coordination. Um, I cringe over national standards. I, I think we got to make mm-hmm. sure that, because we, we do have such amazing and progressive services here in Alberta. I, I think that our police services in Lethbridge, Calgary, uh, Edmonton, uh, et cetera, are, I, I think they, they should be the envy of every of province, quite frankly. Um, they do amazing work. And the members who graduate from those services or get hired by those services um, uh, are, are I, I think, head and shoulders above, quite frankly, every yeah. other province. But, um, but I, I think that there's, there's more we can do. Yeah. I, I just, I, I, I'm not convinced it just has to be one location. Yeah, and the kind of the impression I got from a lot of these uh, the groups that want to create these national standards is uh, they always push for more uh, de-escalation training, more um, just how to talk to people. One of the things that I actually thought about this though, when I was like, "Well, look at the amount of time we spend in training right now," is um, unless you're going to make it a much longer program, like you have to go and do two, three years at this college, graduate, and then get into a police service. One of the issues that comes up is you can't train the hard skills uh, like firearms training, driving, like emergency driving, 
Um, those are things that are not easily practiced or readily available for a person to just go out and practice those on the day to day. But when you're talking to people, that's done every day in your life in general, dealing with conflict, dealing with de-escalating situations. Um, but you can practice that at any time as well. You can always do those in supplemental courses, whereas things like firearms, police driving uh, courses, I mean, those are super hard to put on. You need a lot of resources, cost a lot of money. So when I was thinking about you know what some of these groups ask for, I was like, well, I mean, it makes sense that we do our use of force and firearms and all those things uh, are a big component of that 26, 27 weeks in training right now because you're not going to get that anywhere else without it being a, a big issue to get it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, you know, the talking, every single call I go to, I have to talk to somebody, whether they're angry or they're happy or they're sad and working through that. So you get that practice all the time. So that was kind of one of my thoughts just around having this college and, and what it might look like. I mean, you could always use more firearms training or use of force training. Um, I know we have a couple guys in the service that are jujitsu experts and um, they talk a bit about like the tactics that we use and making it safer for members, but also even for the person that you're apprehending or you're arresting. So um, yeah, I think the idea of a college is it's interesting, but it's like, what would you end up teaching there and how much time are you going to dedicate to each one of those things? Kind of the debate. Well, and, and you're, yeah, you're right. Um, I, I had the opportunity, and I have to admit, I, I know more about Calgary Police Service than Edmonton, uh, just from my time as a police commissioner there. But um, recently, not when I was a commissioner, but um, as a minister, I got the chance to um, attend uh, use of force and de-escalation training with other uh, Calgary Police Commission uh, members. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting to be able to, to walk through. I mean, it, obviously, just a fraction of the, because it was just you know for one day. Um, but what what is taught to the members in mm-hmm. the graduation or recruit class? Um, and as I heard some of the commission members asking, well, when do they learn this and when do they learn that? Um, at some point, we have to have some of the training on the job. Yeah. Like, people do eventually have to graduate. Yeah, uh, It's a, a really robust 26-week program. Then people have to graduate, and some of it's going to come from on-the-job training. Yeah. And uh, that that's uh, it, it's inevitable that and and I, I think as well um, again I I know CPS better than EPS but you know I know that there are opportunities for continuing education mm-hmm. those online programs um, and uh, and in person programs for people to continue to um, upskill and and, and reskill um, while they're the members is going to be incredibly important. Well, and it depends to where you're recruiting from. If you're recruiting from security services already, they generally come with quite a bit of that that training. So you don't have to worry so much about them having the the experience in de-escalating things like they've already been doing those those issues, right? Um, so kind of at the end of our time, I say keep you around an hour. Is there any other uh, other stuff that you think we didn't get to? Any election issues or anything that you <laughs> want to talk about? Um, uh, no, nothing that, that comes to mind, um, but happy to to be back on the, the program and to, to talk to your audience, talk to you and uh, um, any anytime you want me back on and if you have any other questions let me know great no thank you for making the time great thanks so much